morning, church. Thank you so much for joining us online and uh, several hundred of you here in person. I was just sitting there thinking during that last song, I can't decide whether at the end of this virus we should uh, like all get our face masks framed or if we should just take them in the parking lot and pile them up and burn them. Burn them. Okay, the vote's in. We're going to burn them. <laughs> I am so proud of you guys for hanging in there. This is, uh, it's really getting old. I know it's getting old. School's getting ready to start. It's like anxiety about school. Um, and none of us really knows what's going to happen. I know when it started, I thought we'd go four or five weeks. And then we'd all come back together and slobber on each other and kiss us. Remember that? And now it appears that this thing's just dragging on. So we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, we know God's faithful. And uh, I know that he's going to do something awesome through this. If you're tired of it, um, I am too. I'm really tired of it. But God's good. Okay, we just started a story about five weeks ago that I want to continue. And I want to start by going back to a word that I've used, I think, in every single lesson. And it's time now to define the word because I think the word figures into your story. And it's the word utopia. As far as we know, the word utopia was invented by Thomas More, who was a... Um, an author, a British author in the 16th century. He published a book in uh, uh, 1516, I think was the year, right around there, in which he tried to describe this ideal island. And he uh, painted a picture of an island where there was justice and pleasure and everyone got along and everyone lived forever. And as he tried to name the island, the only thing he could come up with was a combination of two Greek words, ou, which in Greek means no or none, and topos, which means place. And so what he argued was he'll name his island no place because he actually thought it didn't exist anywhere. Well, the word has worked its way now into our vocabulary, utopia. And when we say utopia, we usually mean something like an idealistic place, maybe a post-apocalyptic place or some government that's really going to make justice reign and equity and everyone lives, flourishes, does well and so forth. And I want you to know that utopia is actually written across our hearts. So there have been utopian communities, um, the, the kibbutzim and mushavim of uh, Israel where uh, individuals have gone out into the desert and tried to build a little a commune of sorts and uh, they were going to have a peaceful farm and produce something and sell it and life was going to be great. These were motivated by utopian ambitions or aspirations. You know, the guys who go up and buy a a uh, piece of forest in Idaho and bury their guns and wait for the final apocalypse. They're also motivated by some kind of utopian vision. The hippie communes where people go out. I think there's a commune here even in Middle Tennessee where they go out and you know, buy a farm and they think we're going to farm the land and everyone's going to enjoy justice and peace and so forth. All of these are motivated by a utopian ambition. The idea that we really can form a place where things are wonderful, where there's a Garden of Eden here on earth. You should know that governments have sought to do utopian governments. Um, it, it typically ends in an absolute disaster. So the Soviet Union, for example, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, started out by saying, you know, workers of the world unite, and the, uh, the socialists in the Soviet Union believed that they were going to be able to create a government where everybody flourished and there was equity and so forth. Seventy years later, after millions of people had been murdered, massacred by the Soviet Union, I mean their own citizens, and after vast swaths of poverty, I think the best way to put it is uners, uh, uh, workers of the, excuse me, yes, workers of the world, we're sorry it didn't work. 
The People's Republic of China is an effort at a utopian government. Cuba is an effort at a utopian government. Uh, Cambodia was in the 1970s. All of these ended in disaster, but they did have one thing in common. All of them were aiming at some place that would achieve human perfection. Now, I start this way because what I want us to know is that ultimately your story, the story of the Bible, is a story of utopia. It's a, it's a story of utopia. It's a story that starts out in the Garden of Eden, the perfect place. And in the Garden of Eden, we actually enjoyed the very presence of God, humans did. So Adam and Eve could walk in the cool of the breeze of the evening right with God himself. In the utopia of the Garden of Eden, they could eat the fruits of the tree of life and live forever. They had perennial life. In the Garden of Eden, I'll just go back to it, in the Garden of Eden, they enjoyed justice and peace. In the Garden of Eden, there was no suffering. There was no pain in the Garden of Eden. You could plant a garden in the Garden of Eden, and there were no weeds, and you never sweat when you work on it. It was a utopian place. God created you to live in a utopia. The story of the Bible is that we rebelled against God because we wanted to be gods ourselves. And God banished us from the utopia of the Garden of Eden. And the whole rest of the scripture, in fact, the story that really drives all of us is the story of how do I recover the utopia we lost. I'm going to explain it in just a second, but I want to make sure you get it. So Adam and Eve sinned against God and God said, I cannot abide unholy people. You have to leave utopia, which they did. Now, let me just talk about this a second. I want you to think about how much you measure your life by a utopian ideal. Because you do. When someone mistreats you at work, we've had individuals here who've had to quit their jobs because of unfairness. You measure that against what you consider to be the right way to be treated, the perfect job. You've got an idea of utopia in your head. It's, it's written across your genetic makeup. When you guys are starting to date, you're dating a girl, dating a guy, you're looking for the perfect girl or the perfect guy. You have a utopia on your heart that says, if I find the right person, what? I'll have a happy marriage. You have a utopian standard written across your heart. We have this utopian standard when we think about our health, when we think about our relationships, when we think about our finances. We're measuring life by that which we think is the ideal. And I want you to see the Bible is not only true about this, but it's very honest about it. The reason we crave a utopia is because we were made for utopia. We were made to live in the Garden of Eden. We were designed to live in the presence of God in justice and peace. We were designed to live forever. Death is not our friend and it's not natural. Death is our enemy. And it's the consequence not of utopia, the consequence of rebelling in utopia. So if you want to put it in one sentence, one phrase in fact, that I think it's is for the purpose of this sermon. Every movie ends with, every book ends with, and every television program ends with, for the sake of this sermon. It is this phrase. All of us seek a happily ever after. We're all looking for that. Now, the story of the Bible is how we lost it and how God intends to restore it. So we started in the Garden of Eden, but we rebelled. And when we rebelled, God cast us out. But God was not finished with us because when he created us, he created us for the same reason many of you have chosen to have children. He wanted you to love. 
And so he began a plan, first through Abraham, this Bronze Age Middle Eastern character who lived as a Bedouin, said to Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And then God called the Israelites. And so last week we spoke a bit about the Israelites. First of all, the Israelites as God's chosen people, not because they're smarter than anybody else. They're not. And the Jews are not smarter than anybody else. Not because Jews are stronger or more powerful or, uh, you know, have a better, more, more clever than anybody else. They're not. And not because Jews are somehow special people, they're not. I mean, they're not unspecial. I'm not picking on them. They're just another group of people. The reason God says, the reason he called them is because God wanted one nation that he could use as a role model for all other nations. He called Israel not so Israel could be special. He called Israel so that Israel could show the rest of the world, this is how you're supposed to live. So as we looked at last week from Isaiah 42, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you guys so you can be a light to the nations. Israel was supposed to be a working model of what it's like to live in God's presence. They were a working model of a utopia right here in the middle of this dystopia, this world, this broken world. And today we have to admit the, um, the tragic. And I do have to say, uh, as I preach this at the eight o'clock service, I do have to say to you that um, this was, I sweated during the first service and it's not because it was hot, it's because the story of Israel, at least up until the coming of Jesus, is a really sad story. And it's kind of painful to preach. Because Israel was supposed to be a utopia in the middle of a broken world. Instead, they became what I'm going to call a dystopia. So whereas Israel was supposed to acknowledge the one true God, instead they worshipped idols. Where Israel was supposed to be the most ethical place on earth. Over and over and over again, God has to send prophets to them to tell them, I'm going to destroy you for your unethical behavior. Where Israel was supposed to be a holy nation, over and over and over again, God, he doesn't just threaten them, he pleads with them. Be holy as I've called you to be. So the story of Israel is a story of God trying to teach the world, this is how you are to live. And it's a story of a people who just can't seem to get it. So I tried to think, how do I talk about the failure of Israel? We need to talk about the failure of Israel for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's part of your story. As we've said, if you don't know your past, then you have only a guess about your future. Knowing your past is an important part of knowing your future. But it's more than that. The truth is that people continue to repeat the sins of Israel. I'm going to go through a few of them. And you're going to see they were not unique. To Israel. That a lot of these sins are national sins that we still see today. They're sins against which even many of us struggle. And I've tried to categorize them. I'm going to put them in three categories and I'm going to start with this one. Israel rebelled against God. Israel lost their place. First of all, because they forgot their God. That sums up a lot and you can find a number of texts in the Old Testament. There are texts again where God pleads and he says to them, does a baby forget its mother? But you've forgotten me. Can a mule forget its owner? But you forgot me. Even with the prophet Hosea, God says to Hosea, man of God, he says, I want you to go marry a prostitute. I mean, just imagine if God said that to your preacher, go marry a prostitute. And then when she runs away from you, I want you to tell everybody how it feels. Because that's what it feels like to be married to Israel. 
It's a God who's pleading with people, stop forgetting me. So in this text in the book of Judges, chapter 2, after Joshua died and the elders who worked with Joshua, they've entered the land of uh, Canaan now. And in chapter 2, the Bible says that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors and another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And they served the Baals. They went after idols. One of the great sins that Israel committed was they simply forgot who their God was. We see this all over the place in the Old Testament. Here's just one example. So Baal was the God of power. And you just see, matter of fact, they're figurines. So you know how when uh, farmers around here plow their fields, they, they, they turn up arrowheads occasionally? When they farm the fields in Israel, they turn up statues of Baal. Now, I want you to know, these are in Israel where they're supposed to be worshiping the one true God. There are statues of Baal by the thousands buried under the ground in Israel. Why? Because they wanted power. They worshiped Asherah, who was the goddess of fertility. And they would worship Asherah by going to her temple and having sex with a prostitute. That's how they worshiped. And then in the most dastardly of all, right outside the southern walls of Jerusalem is the valley of the sons of Hinnom. Gehenna, it's called in Hebrew. It comes to us as the word hell. But in about the seventh century before Christ, in that very valley, the Israelites, the Jews, the worshipers of the one true God would take their babies and sacrifice them alive in hopes that they would get more babies from the God Moloch. In each case, here's what has happened. They have totally forgotten the God who saved them. Now, let me just say, I see the same thing happening in America. And I'm not suggesting that America has always been this wonderful nation. Actually, I love America. I believe in America. I think that we probably are maybe the best nation that we've ever seen. But I am going to say this. We've had our sins in the past, but we're living in unprecedented times when the Christian faith is in decline and where people feel now the permission openly to reject God. So there was a news clip that came out over the weekend. I haven't verified it. It may be true. It may not be true. But that Bibles were being burned now in the protests up in Portland, Oregon, just two hours from where my son's trying to plant a church. So why would people in a protest try to burn a Bible? And the answer is pretty obvious. It's because you have to make a choice today. Either you stand for God or you stand against God. The days of gray ambiguity are about over in America. When a people forget their God, here's what you need to know. They will never see a utopia. They will now become a dystopia. The godlessness of Marxism, the godlessness of the Soviet Union, of the People's Republic of China, where they're now persecuting, throwing Christians in prison, it is occurring because people have thrown God out. And I just even have to say, I want to say this to those of you who are watching at home. Um, People who are studying church trends are telling senior ministers such as myself and others that what we thought might last a few weeks, this COVID lockdown, now could last a year or two, and it's become an accelerator. So trends that were already in place are accelerating. You see what's happened, what I mean by that? So nothing, it's not exactly that something new has happened, it's that things that were already happening are now happening much faster. And here's what I mean. There were a lot of uh, Christians in America who were sort of lukewarm, were not all that serious. 
I mean, to be honest, North Boulevard, we've got lukewarm members that, you know, they come, but you're not all that into it. I'm not trying to criticize you, but I'm being honest. And the virus is accelerating your dropout. That we may not see the numbers we saw back in February for another five years. And a lot of churches are really struggling with this. That all of a sudden we're waking up and realizing that people who were barely hanging on to the Christian faith, they may be leaving. And when we first had to go into lockdown, it was not uncommon for us to have 10,000 viewers at home. Our numbers now are more like 2,500 or 3,000. And we're being told that as many as a quarter of our own members are no longer logging in. I'm saying that because I want us to be sure of the fact that once we decide that we don't really need God in our lives, we are ruling out the possibility of a happily ever after because only God can give it. We cannot give it, and when we try to give it, we will destroy our world. So the sin of the Jews, one sin was they just forgot their God. Let me point out a second sin. I'll call it the sin of selfishness. And there's so many texts that I tried to find one that sort of condensed it, and this is what I came up with, Isaiah chapter 5. Right, God says through Isaiah, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking alcohol, champions at mixed drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. On and on Isaiah goes. In fact, Isaiah speaks over and over and over again about this. Here's, here's what he means. When people get so selfish that they are willing to lie, when you get so selfish that you're willing to mistreat other people, when you get so selfish that all you think about is your next party, when you get so selfish that you're not paying attention to how the world is hurting today, when you're that selfish, you are now not only not going to enjoy utopia, you are creating the dystopia. You're the reason it's so bad. And I want you to note also how he starts. Because he starts by saying injustice and unethical behavior always seeks to justify itself. And that's the biggest lie. We always lie to ourselves when we do something wrong. Because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I think I'm going to go do something evil today. Instead, we desire something evil, but we lie about it. We say it's not really evil, it's actually good. We spin the truth so we don't stand convicted. Let me just give you an illustration or two. Here's an illustration. I'm just shocked again at how, pardon me for just calling it out. We have a Hollywood producer, Harvey Weinstein. We have a, a millionaire, billionaire, I don't know what he is. Jeffrey Epstein, who's, who's now dead. Both of whom, evidently, the entire elite world of North America knew about their sins. And it didn't stop them from hobnobbing around with them. Princes did. Presidents did. I mean, it's like the whole world knew what these guys were doing. It didn't seem to stop them until the house of cards collapsed. Years this went on in America. I just am pointing that out because I want to make sure we understand. Unethical conduct like that always looks for a friend. It always looks for a way to say, well, they're not that bad. And when God speaks to Israel and says, you are going to suffer, this is what he points out. Let me give you another illustration. Hang on. Talking to a friend down in Jacksonville, Florida. Oh, I don't know, two months ago. 
And she kept talking about August the 27th. You know, we got to do this. But she's got a big thing coming August 27th. And she, she was talking like I wouldn't know what she was talking about. I thought, oh, it must be her anniversary or I don't know what it is. So what's August 27th? And she said, you don't know August 27th? I said, no. She said, the axe handle riots. Axe handle Saturday. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, she's African-American. She said, well, that figures you're white. I said, okay, tell me, what, what do I not know? In 1960, a group of about 200 African-Americans in Jacksonville, Florida, went down to sit at a counter and ask for lunch to be served. I don't know all the details. I do know that sometimes things get spun out in stories, but here's, here, here are the commonly agreed upon facts. The police in Jacksonville, Florida knew that this was going to happen. They notified the local KKK and said, you can have the first 15 minutes before we show up. So the KKK showed up with ax handles and baseball bats. Here we are now. What's that? 60 years later. That was the year I was born, 1960. 60 years later, here we are with a culture still suffering and grieving that kind of injustice. I want to say, I understand that progressivism is not the answer to race relations in America. I want all of you to hear that. I don't think progressivism will make it better. I think it'll make it worse. But at the same time, I also want to say, we have to take seriously the injustices that have been in our nation. We cannot dismiss them and pretend like they didn't happen. What we have to do is acknowledge the depth of injustice in America so we can bring the gospel to it. And I just want to say, Isaiah is concerned about this. Isaiah says, how can you look at an orphan? How can you look at a widow? How can you look at an immigrant, see them suffering, and just walk on by? How can you do that? What Isaiah is trying to teach us in this text and many others is that God cares about justice. He cares about right living. And Israel was judged because it didn't. That was one of their sins. Okay, I have to end with one more category. So the, the third big category in Scripture was sexual sin. And again, you can find it all through Scripture. In fact, when God complains about Israel, He just keeps saying over and over again, let's see, how do we say this? This is the nice way to say it, okay? Because I'm going to spare your children the not nice way of saying it. But the Bible uses the not nice way. The nice way, the Lord says, you're prostitutes. They're sinning sexually. Here it is in one text, Ezekiel 23. I'm about to, God says to Israel, I'm about to hand you over to the Babylonians. Why? I want you to be naked. I want you to be ashamed of your sexual sin. Your constant lusting, your constant sleeping around have brought punishment upon you. Here's what I want you to see. Since the sexual revolution, also in the 1960s, and I just, my heart grieves that we have a younger generation, some of whom are sitting over here to my left, who probably don't even know what, the, never even heard of the sexual revolution. Don't realize there was, was once a time when you didn't have the pill. And was, there was actually once a time when pretty commonly people thought that one man and one woman should come together in marriage and commit themselves to their children. Now that we've lost that, can I ask you a question? Is America a better place? In fact, I'm going to make, I'm going to make this claim. The reason poverty is so severe in America the reason mental health issues are so bad in America, the reason incarceration rates are so high in America, 
The reason there are so many members of gangs in America, the reason teenage suicide is out the roof, the reason there is so much rage in our cities is because of America's pagan sexual ethics. All you have to do is destroy enough families. You see, family, it's the cell. It's the DNA of a civilization. If you destroy the DNA, the cell dies. And we may think that if we do enough governmental policies, we can avoid all these symptoms of the disease. I'm for governmental policies when they work, but I just want to make sure you know, governmental policies will never put a baby to bed at night. A government policy will never hold a little boy and say to him, I'm going to stay with you the rest of your life and love him as a son. The government can never do that. Not because it's bad, it just can't. And by destroying families, one family at a time in America through our decadent sexual ethic, we are destroying ourselves. That's one reason why it's so important that Christians not back down on the sexual revolution. We dare not back down. When we start backing down on it, we are condemning a generation to brokenness. Just this week, a friend of mine whose father left him when he was young, he's 40 years old. He said to me, David, you have no idea the level of rage inside of me that I cannot shake. So here's how God puts it. He says, he's talking in Leviticus chapter 18 where he's talking about sexual sin. And he, the Bible has such a beautiful vision of sex. Sex is a good thing. Sex is a beautiful thing. You should enjoy sex. The very first command God ever gave humans is go have sex. Go make babies. But he teaches us to do it in this context. One man, one woman in a committed married relationship for life. That's how you're supposed to do it. If we back down from that, the world may applaud us and tell us we're so tolerant. We're such good people now. I'm so glad you're affirming. That's what the world will say to you. You need to know you are condemning the world to a dystopia. We Christians now are the last, we are the last line of defense. I'm protecting what God has laid down. We're the last line of defense and we cannot back down. And here's what he says. In chapter 18 of Leviticus, God is talking about sexual sin and he says, if you keep doing this, by the way, notice that God doesn't say, I'll punish you. He says that a lot in the Bible. So he's, he's, he'll punish. But in this case, he says, if you keep doing this, the land itself will vomit you out. There's only so much sin the land can stand before it vomits you out. Well, it did. And so in the year 722 before Christ, the brutal terrorist regime of the Assyrians marched into northern Israel and captured the Jews, taking them forever off into captivity. And in 586 before Christ, the terrorist organization, the Boko Haram type terrorist organization, Islamic State type organization, came into Jerusalem, captured the city, and hauled them off. And God destroyed Israel. They went into, as our illustration is, exile. And so, if I were to stop the story here, I think you would all go home and say, I think I'm going to watch Corey today. That was a discouraging, depressing sermon. But see, our story's not over. 
You have to remember, if you don't get the story right, then you don't know where to go. If you don't know who you are, you don't know what to do. We have to be honest about this part of our story, but you need to know that's not where it ends. Because even while God was allowing the children of Israel to be hauled off into exile, he was laying the plans for how he was going to bring them back. As he says, I will never forsake you. So I've got two kids, two adult kids. What do you think they could possibly do that would make me say, you're not my child anymore? And the answer is, there's nothing. They could kill me and I'd still own them as my kid. And that's how God looks at us. There's nothing you can do, he says, that is going to make me stop loving you. So in spite of the punishment, in spite of their sinfulness, God began to lay plans for how he was going to redeem his people. And he was going to do it by building a new utopia. I don't want you to miss that. Our story is from utopia to utopia. It is from the Garden of Eden to the restored heavens and earth. That is, God is going to rebuild it all better than it ever was. So he speaks to the Jews and he says, I'm going to call you back. Can I just read you a few of these texts? Just when you thought God was done with Israel, just when you thought they deserve everything they get, God says, oh, I can't forget you. You are my child. Here's how he put it in Amos 9. So Amos only has nine chapters. For nine, eight and a half chapters, strictly speaking, nine and a half, for nine and a half chapters, Amos just excoriates the Jews. And then in the last few verses, he says, but wait a minute, we're not done. The days will still come, he says, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. That is, the crops are going to grow so fast in this new utopia that before you can harvest it, the guy's going to be planting the next load behind you. The planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. I will bring my people back. They will rebuild their cities. They will live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. You hear all the Garden of Eden references? And drink the wine. I will make their gardens and they will eat the fruit. I will plant them in their own land and they will never again be uprooted. It is God's plan to redeem us through none other than Jesus Christ. So just when you thought the Old Testament was a horror story with no redeeming values, we read this. Oh, a child will be born. A son will be given. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll have the kingdom. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his kingdom, there will be no end. And he will sit on David's throne and establish justice and rightness from that time on and forever. That God is not done with us. The story continues on. My favorite text, Jeremiah 31, just excerpts. Does God for, forever, does God abandon Israel? No, listen to what he says. He says, oh Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I'm never going to take my love away from you. Even after what you did, I won't take my love away. I will build you up again, O virgin Israel. By the way, was Israel a virgin? No. But he says, I'm going to make you a virgin again. I'll build you up, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines. Again, you will go out and dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and eat their fruit. I will gather you from the ends of the earth. 
Among those who return will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers, mothers in labor. A great throng will return. They will come weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water. They will come and shout for joy. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the wine, the olive oil, the young of the flocks. They'll be like a well-watered garden. And they will never again be sad. And young women will dance and be glad. Young men, old men will dance. And I will turn their mourning into gladness. And I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. And I will satisfy them with my abundance. They will be filled with bounty. Thus saith the Lord. He's not done with us. He still has a utopia ahead of us. You see, we left a garden, but in the end, we're going back to a garden. Much better than the first. Can I read one last text? Isaiah 11. Isaiah is all about how God's going to punish Israel, but about every three chapters, he just says, but wait, 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 don't tune me out yet. Don't, don't, don't go to the other preacher just yet. Because after the punishment... He says, the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. A calf and a lion and a yearling will eat together. A little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. An infant will play with snakes, but they won't be hurt. Not on my holy mountain. And the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the ocean. The promise of God is that it is not over yet. The promise of God is to those who do not try to buy their, build their own utopia, because you cannot do it. When we try to build our own utopia, we always build a dystopia. The call of God has come to me and accept my utopia. Take my blessing. When we do that, when you come to the one true God, His promise, as we'll see when we start the story of Jesus next week, God willing, his promise is simply this, you will get your happily ever after, only in God. Let's sing our song.